good to be together, and we are in Luke 3. And we find ourselves here because, for those of you who are new with us, we, we uh, go through books of the Bible and just allow that book to kind of dictate to us what we cover. So we've already been through chapters 1 and 2, but in case you feel like you might be out of the loop, it's going to be okay. You'll be able to pick right up here. And uh, this will stand alone so that you won't be lost, but just know that that's how we find ourselves in chapter 3 today. So Luke chapter 3, and we'll actually cover the whole chapter today, and uh, we'll think on this idea of surrender, of surrender. So what I want to do is I want to read um, specifically verses 3 through 6, and then... I'll pray, and then we'll hear from God's Word together. Luke chapter 3, verses 3 through 6. And he, the he there, is John, known as John the Baptist. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Let's pray. Father, in these minutes that we have together, we ask for your mercy that we might understand what we have not previously understood, that we might feel where we have previously been cold, where we might be made humble, where we previously have stiff-armed you and been proud of heart. That, Father, you would give faith and we would abound in belief where we previously have been characterized by skepticism. And that, Father, you would sweep over us in this moment by the power of your Holy Spirit and you would set us free from our sin. You would break the chains of shame and guilt that should characterize everyone, and yet because of your infinite love in Jesus, there is a remedy for shame and guilt and for sin. And so, Father, please, break through in this moment. And I ask that each one of us would be honest with ourselves and really confess if if we have a heart that doesn't want to listen or just wants to hear what we want to hear, would you break that free, jar it loose, that we might follow you with all of our hearts. For that is where joy comes. So give us joy in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. October 17th, 1781. Famous day in American history. It was on this day when General Cornwallis found himself surrendering to French and colonial American troops to end what is now known as the American Revolution. 
Two days later, they had a formal ceremony to acknowledge this surrender, but General Cornwallis wanted it to be a British surrender. He wanted it to be such that it had pageantry, that flags would fly, and that muskets would be hung over the shoulders. George Washington was going to have none of it, for there would be nothing that smelled of British victory at all. So he said, no, this surrender would be on America's terms. And so the British marched in with muskets down and without pageantry, and it so infuriated Cornwallis that he didn't even show up for the ceremony. But nonetheless, showed up or not, they surrendered, and the victory was won. As I thought about this story, I thought about how tempting it is for us to want surrender on our own terms. We want it to look a certain way. We say, yes, Jesus, I want to follow you, but I still must preserve this part of my life. I still must have my hands on this aspect of life. I still must, it, it's got to look how I want it to look. And friends, that is not surrender. And in this passage here, John the Baptist has come as one who would prepare the way for what we will see by the end of the book as Jesus Christ, the one who died in the place of sinners and rose from the dead on the third day, the one who is worthy of all submission and all surrender, he was here to prepare the way of surrender to lead people to Jesus. Not that they might surrender on their own terms, in their own timing, in their own way, that they might fully surrender to him on his terms. Because when we fully release our hands from our lives, that's when the floodgates of joy and genuine true freedom happen. So what we want to look at here is what I'm calling the pathway to surrender. Four aspects found in Luke chapter 3 that help us see what is the pathway that God lays out for genuine surrender to him. So the pathway to surrender is this. Number one, the pathway to surrender is through repentance. Verses 1 to 6. The pathway to surrender is through rejecting religion, verses 7 through 9. The pathway to surrender is displayed through obedience, verses 10 all the way to 22. Specifically, the obedience of baptism and bearing fruit, which we'll go through. I use those terms because they're in the passage, and we'll understand what those are in a second. But finally, the pathway to surrender is not first something you do. It is something that has already been accomplished for you by our precious Savior. This is the pathway to surrender. And the reason I use the language pathway is because what we see at the beginning of Luke here, it says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar Pontius Pilate, I'm in verse 1 of chapter 3. Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, sorry, I blew that one, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, I'm reading these for a reason, during the high priest of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Why in the world did he give us all that? Because Luke gives attention to detail. He's a doctor, and you always want your doctor to give attention to detail, right? 
Okay, well, he's writing this, and he gives attention to detail to say this. To say, this story that I am telling you is rooted in history. It is no fable. You can go back to a timeline, find these individuals who really existed, and plot it on a map. This sense that this happened. Jesus was born around 4 B.C., and we know that John the Baptist shows up during these times, and then by the time you get to verse 23 of this chapter, it says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. So you're looking anywhere between 24 to 28 A.D. is when Jesus is beginning his ministry, and it's just a historical fact. This happened. And so John the Baptist, a real person, and in case you don't know, John the Baptist is not called John the Baptist because he was of a Baptist denomination. He was called John the Baptist because he baptized people. It was a description of what he did. Jesus the Christ, Jesus Christ, Christ is not his last name, it's a description of who he was and what he did. So here we find out what John the Baptist came to do, and it says in verse 3, he proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And it is said of him in verse 4 that he is the one who is the voice crying in the wilderness, preparing the what? The way of the Lord, making his path straight. John the Baptist's job was to prepare the way what I'm calling here the pathway to surrender, ultimately the pathway to Jesus. John was the one who was laying what this pathway would look like to trust in Jesus and to receive forgiveness, and it began for him through repentance. The pathway to surrender, it begins through repentance, and that's what his baptism was. Let's make sure that you get it. It is, baptism means to dip. So it was putting one in the water and raising them out of the water, and that communicated something. Namely, that repentance of sins led to forgiveness of sins. Do you see that? Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's what repentance does. When you turn from your sin and trust in God as the only one who can wash you clean, not trusting in your abilities, not trusting in your religious acts, but trusting in his work for you, you can be saved. You can be forgiven and washed clean. And then as a public demonstration of that, you were baptized. So he would baptize those who professed with their mouth that they were sinners in need of a Savior and they trusted in the coming Messiah to save them for their sins. Okay? This is what John did. It was a baptism of repentance. Now, repentance means to turn. It means I'm walking this way, and it is a way focused on me and myself and my ways, and it is turning from that and saying, I want to follow Jesus. I'll tell you, just be flat honest with you. I read this entire chapter. I had prepared a bulk of this message, and then the Lord just went like that to my heart. And I had made it academic. Made sure I understood what each word meant. Studied the passage. Could tell you what it means. But I missed why it is in the book. It's in the book. Not so that I would know good facts about Jesus. 
It's in the book so that I would surrender to a Jesus who is factual. And the only way you surrender is not by learning a bunch of good facts, but through repentance. And when you talk about repentance as turning, it can just become academic. It can just become cold. This sense of, yeah, I'm sorry I did it. Bad me. Start doing better. This is not biblical repentance. Biblical repentance begins with, I have offended the God of the universe. It is an acknowledgement of His superior greatness, not just in size or power, but in everything, in love, in justice, in mercy, in grace. He is above all. And it is an acknowledgement of just how rotten our one action 30 actions, 3,000 actions are. We have pushed God aside. Our sin is saying, I know what's best for me and I know it better than you. If we didn't say that, we would choose his way over our way. But we don't. Every one of us knows it. Every single person on the planet has chosen their own way and not God's way. At one point or another or in every aspect of life. We say, I will do it my own way. And what we have done is we have taken lightly and we have made cheap what God offers at a great sacrifice. If I have a penny, and this it's pretty hard to buy anything with a penny these days, but if you have a penny and it gets me a piece of gum, and as I'm walking down the street, I reach in my pocket to get the gum, And it's missing. Somehow I've lost the gum. I'm like, no big deal. Just a penny. There's plenty of gum. There's plenty of pennies. So I'll go and I'll take my penny and I'll get another piece of gum. No big deal. But what if something costs everything that you got? What if it costs everything that you have? What are you going to do? You're going to attend to it, right? You're going to look at it. You're going to take care of it. You're going to be attentive to it. And we treat our relationship with Jesus as if it costs nothing. How many times have we been guilty of saying, He's gracious and forgiving. I can do this one thing, no big deal. Following Jesus doesn't talk that way. It is stepping on Him It is abusing his mercy. We are taking cheap and making cheap what cost him his life. It cost him torn flesh. It cost him leaving glory in order to draw near to sinners who would eventually kill him. And he did it so that we could have life. He came to us that we might walk in freedom. And the Bible says, repent. Turn from that. It should be a weighty thing. It doesn't have to take a long time, but it is a genuine sense of God. Expose the sin in me. Unravel it from my heart and help me to follow you. Why is that good news? 
because of this. Luke writes another chapter in his book. It's called the book of Acts. And when he writes volume 2, he says this, Repent, turn again, that your sins might be blotted out. And hear this, that times of refreshing would come from the presence of the Lord. That's why repentance is beautiful. Because it's not just running from bad things. It's not just obeying certain rules. It is running into the arms of refreshment and rest and peace. Into the arms of a Savior who isn't begrudging that He came, but chose to come for the joy set before Him. And that is a relationship with you and me. So He says that surrender must characterize, be characterized by repentance. And as I began to think about this, John the Baptist is speaking about those who have not ever really confessed God as their Lord. So this is kind of, there's two ways to think about repentance. Some think about repentance as something that only happens at the beginning. That is, it's like the key that unlocks the door, and then once you're in, you're done. You don't have to worry about that thing anymore. The Bible paints a little different picture of repentance, and that is it's something that you do all the time. It's just part of your relationship. You turn and you trust. You receive, receive refreshment. When you run back into sin, he stirs in your heart. You turn and you trust and you receive refreshment. This is the pattern of the Christian, not just the one who is kind of getting into the door of Christianity. But as John is proclaiming this to a bunch of people who have never trusted in God, I thought it would be helpful if we looked at seven signs of saving faith. Seven signs that you would be able to look. Maybe you're talking to your children about what it might look like to be a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're wondering in your own heart, am I a follower of Jesus? I think these seven signs of saving faith will help us as we seek to assess the work of God in our lives. And the first one is, in order to repent of sin, you must acknowledge sin. You don't turn from something that you don't believe is there, right? So you know God is at work when you say, not, she's a sinner, I'm a sinner. Acknowledge sin. The humility to say, I am a sinner in need of a Savior is ground level zero when it comes to, am I a follower of Jesus? But number two would be unsolicited repentance. That is, not saying I'm sorry because you got caught. Not confessing something because all of a sudden it was discovered by someone else. But without anyone telling you, without anyone making you aware, something, I would argue, someone stirs in the heart and says, that will lead you away from me. Turn to me. Something in the heart says, this is not good for you. Don't say that word. Don't invest in this corrupt business dealing. Don't get angry and lay into this person. Don't lust and look after this. But also, sin is not just what you avoid, but what you refuse to go after. So the Spirit of God might stir in your heart and say, pursue me, love me, love others. And that leads us into the next one. So seven signs of saving faith. One is acknowledge personal sin. Two is unsolicited repentance. Three is a hunger to read God's word and pray. A, 
a follower of Jesus wants to be with God. And where do you meet with God? It's in his word and in prayer. It doesn't mean that you always are wanting to be with God. It doesn't mean that you don't wake up and you struggle to desire to be in his word. But it is a general trajectory of the life. I want to be with God. Because I love him. And number four, submissive to, God's, to God and his word, even when it's hard or not popular. If you follow him, you will do what he says to do. You want to obey him. Number five, you cling to Jesus in and through some type of suffering. This is a huge sense of a test. Now, Let's be really clear. These are not statements of perfection, but of desire. The issue is not, oh, well, they're an 8 out of 10 in this. They cling to God a lot more than I do, and I'm a 2 out of 10. This isn't a measuring stick to compare yourself to other people. This is, is there a hunger and a desire sparked by the Spirit of God at work in your heart. And so when it comes to suffering, I know what it's like to go through pain and to at some point in that just really ask God, why is this happening? What is going on? And to be frustrated and angry and all those emotions, it doesn't make them right, but it is understandable when all that pain comes. But what happens over time when you are in suffering The follower will say, although I don't understand, I trust in you. The follower will say, I know you are with me, even though this hurts like crazy. You cling to Jesus in your suffering. And then number six, it is not just mental assent to facts, but you love Jesus. You love him. Last night, I went to a restaurant with a few from the church, and uh, after we had eaten, uh, went up and uh, talked to the guy as we were paying the bill, and he was just like, what kind of group are you? And uh, we were, I was like, oh, we're a group from our church, and I said, uh, we love Jesus, and he has changed our lives, and we were just out here having a good time together. I said, where do you, uh, what's your religious background? And he says, oh, I'm a Christian. And I said, really? So you love Jesus? And he was like... Um, I go to church every single week. And I said, really, where do you go? And he told me the place of where he went. And I, understanding kind of that context now of kind of what he was uh, going to, I said, well, I just want you to know that Jesus loves you and he has changed my life. I am born again. And that would be a phrase that he would understand giving his tradition and, and background. And I said, I just pray that you love him. And then he obviously was feeling kind of awkward, and he didn't want to talk anymore. And so we just kind of moved on, and I paid for the bill, and thanked him so much for his great service. But that is a litmus test for Christianity. It is not just, I know right things, and I do good things. It is, I love Jesus. I hope you can say that today. I hope you can say that. If not, go to the beginning. Acknowledge your sin. And trust in him to wash you clean and set you free. But the last one is loving your neighbor. Loving your neighbor. I tell you, this is one that's really helpful when you're talking to children. 
is not only the ability to unsolicited repentance. That's a big one for children. When unsolicited, they say, I've done wrong. That's a huge sign that God's at work. But the last one is, are they able to love their brother and sister even when their brother and sister continues to do wrong to them? But here you can even see it, right? It's not perfectly. It's not, do you love perfectly? It's, are you fighting to love even when it's hard? If you are, that fight is a work of the Spirit of God in your heart, and we praise Him for it. And so, it's these last two that I think John goes on now to address in verses 7 through 9. That is the love for God over against adherence to rules and the idea of loving your neighbor. And so let's dive in there because the pathway to surrender is not just through repentance but through rejecting religion. Look at verses 7 through 9. It says, He said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers. It's usually not the way I, I greet people, but that's how John the Baptist chose to do it because... He knew what was happening. Listen to the next phrase. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He's looking at these individuals who are convinced that if they go through this external motion of getting wet and being pulled up out of the water, that they're going to be spared from the wrath to come. And he says, who told you this mess? Who told you that if you were a good religious person and you did all the rules, went through the external actions, that you were okay? Who told you that? And so he goes on and he says, verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That is, if you've genuinely turned from sin to trust in Jesus, there will be fruit in your life. And here's what they said in response. He's kind of playing this out. Well, then you might say, well, we have Abraham as our father. That is, they were Jewish. And he says, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. What were they leaning on? They were leaning on their ethnicity is what gets them in the door. Because Jesus was a Jew, the Messiah was a Jew, God's chosen people were the Jews, and so I'm Jewish, I'm saved, I'm set. Some of us, we don't wrestle with ethnicity piece, but we do think, my grandmama took me to church, I'm good. I've gotten baptized before, I'm good. I go to church every Sunday, I'm good. I'm a good person, I'm better than the person next to me, I'm good. These are the things that we must reject as a foundation for salvation. That's what John the Baptist was doing. He was saying, you cannot Use your actions as a means of getting to God. So he calls them brood of vipers. Why is that? Well, there's one very famous snake in the Bible in Genesis 3. And he's saying those who talk like that align themselves as a big group with the one snake, the devil. To lean on your actions as a genuine sense that you can be saved, you are aligning yourself with the devil because that is not how salvation comes. And so whether it was their adherence to certain rules or whether it was their adherence to their ethnicity and their upbringing, they were thinking their external actions could save them. And John says in verse 9, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. 
Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That is, judgment is coming. You've got to turn from this mess right now. Stop leaning on yourself and start repenting, genuinely giving, surrendering of your whole life to me. And when that happens, fruit will come. But don't do this external action thinking that it secures you. It's built upon faith. Well, this week was the inauguration of our 45th president, Donald Trump. And just in saying those phrases, it leads some people to discouragement, some people to encouragement, some people to hatred, some people to animosity, some people to despair, some people to hope. I'm not going to address any of that. But what I do want to address is something that he said that I think honestly describes our culture to a T. It was in July at a family leadership summit. Trump said this, that he has never asked God for forgiveness, but he does take communion, which as he described is when I drink a little wine, which is about the only wine I drink, and have my little cracker, I guess that is a form of asking for forgiveness, and I do that as often as possible because I feel cleansed. Some of us might want to rise up in judgment. But this is a description of so many. Why do you come to church? Come to church because it's the right thing to do, and I feel better after I do it. God wants you to feel cleansed, but he does not want you to feel cleansed based upon your own actions. He wants you to feel cleansed because he did what you could not do. You come and feel cleansed because you realize you're at the end of yourself and he's done everything for you. You come and feel cleansed because he's washed you clean. You come and feel cleansed because you're a sinner in need of a savior. And we do. We're guilty. Trump went on to say, though, when he was interviewed later, because as it goes in politics, you know, they take a phrase and then they just, you know, tweet it for years and, and so he's got to address it now. So he does. He says, well, I will be asking for forgiveness, but hopefully I won't have to be asking for much forgiveness. As you know, I'm a Presbyterian and a Protestant. What does that say? I'm genuinely a good person because I have a religious label. I go to church. I do the right thing. I might have been baptized. I might have taken the Lord's Supper. I'm not as bad as my neighbor. Oh, may we not stand just in judgment of him, but may we grieve. Because this isn't just in Christianity that can go this way. All religions seek to smuggle in this sense of, I can be good enough. And by my own goodness, I can be accepted. It is a lie from the pit of hell because surrender and refreshment and joy comes not from you feeling sufficient, but by you declaring your inability to save yourself and only Christ. Oh, may we begin by rejecting religion, but asking for forgiveness. Now, some of you, some of you, when I, when I give that list of the seven you might be tempted to think, man, 
you know, I feel bad for some things I've done, but I haven't pursued God and his word. And man, I'm going through a hard time in suffering. And I've really battled on where is God and who he is in that. So maybe I'm just not a Christian. For some of you, that is not where you need to go. Where you need to go is to take those seven things and make them points of prayer. Because if you desire those things, that desire only comes from God. But you would say, oh God, help me to see my sin. Oh God, help me to genuinely be grieved over my sin. Oh God, help me to obey you fully. Oh God, give me a desire for your word and prayer. Oh God, help me to cling to you in the midst of suffering. Oh God, help me to have affection for you even when my desire is low. Oh God, help me to love my neighbor. Do that in me. Anybody who wants to pray like that is a believer. God is at work in you. But where you don't desire those things, use that as a point that judgment is coming and you must turn to him. But for those of you who are cold, I read this week a man named Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite authors, in his book called Morning and Evening. And in Morning and Evening, he stated this. For some of you who are Christians but feel cold, and he takes it from a verse, Song of Solomon, verses three, or chapter 3, verse 1, and it says, I sought him, but I found him not. And this is about those who are seeking the Lord, but feel like it's struggle to be in his presence. And here is the quote, and I pray it helps you. You'll see it on the screen. He says this, Tell me where you lost the company of a Christ, and I will tell you the most likely place to find him. Have you lost Christ in the closet by restraining from prayer? Then, it is there you must seek and find him. Did you lose Christ by sin? You'll find Christ in no other way but by giving up of the sin and seeking by the Holy Spirit to mortify the member in which the lust does dwell. Do you lose Christ by neglecting the scriptures? Well, you must find Christ in the scriptures. It is a true proverb. Look for a thing where you dropped it. It is there. How many times have you lost something? This is me. Well, where was it last? Well, if I knew where it was last, I would be able to find it. Look for something where you dropped it, and there he will be. Have you neglected the scriptures? Start there. Has there been a sin that is a vice? Turn from that. He goes on to say this. So look for Christ where you lost him, for he has not gone away. Hear that. He's not left you. That's the beauty of the good news. Take care then when you find your master to cling close to him. But how is it that you've lost him? And now he begins to tell us what a prize we get to go after. It's our Savior. One would have thought you would never have parted with such a precious friend whose presence is so sweet, whose words are so comforting, and whose company is so dear to you? How is it that you did not watch him every moment for fear of losing sight of him? Because remember, he's so precious. He didn't cost a penny. He gave his life. Yet since you have let him go, what a mercy that you are seeking him. Even though you mournfully groan, oh, that I knew where I might find him. Go on seeking, friend, for it is dangerous to be without the Lord. Without Christ, you are like a sheep without its shepherd, like a tree without water at its roots. With your whole heart, seek him, and he will be found by you. Only give yourself thoroughly up to the search, and truly, you will yet discover him for your joy and gladness. Don't give up. Don't give up. Go after him. He will 
answer that promise. Those who seek the Lord with their whole heart will find him. So the pathway to surrender is through repentance, through rejecting religion, and it is also through obedience. Pursuing him when you are cold, but also specifically this passage draws out obedience of baptism and bearing fruit. And I just want you to look briefly at these two things. 1 verse 10, and the crowd asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them. And now he gives you three examples. And this is going to, I'm going to start with bearing fruit and then go to baptism because that's the order of the passage. But in the Christian's life, baptism is the first fruit that you bear, and then you bear more fruit. And we'll see that in a second. He says, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Summary, Christians are generous. Those who follow Christ will bear the fruit of generosity. And specifically, what does he say? Share with him who has none. Or whoever has food is to do likewise. That means the Christian is looking for those who have needs. They have a keen eye towards the poor, towards those who are in straits, and they give of what they have. The tunic was the garment close to the body. The cloak was what went around that. If you got two of them, give one away, he says, because Christians are characterized by generosity, and they have a keen eye towards those who are in need. But number two, Christians bear witness through their work, through their occupations and what they do. Look at the first one. Tax collectors, verse 12, also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, of course he's already said, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, so they've got to do that. But what does it look like for us to bear fruit? And he says, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Two things. Notice this. He does not tell them to quit their job. He tells them to stay in their job and to use their job as a platform for showing off their God. So how do we bear witness through our work? Number one is you don't quit it, you use it. It's not that the holy occupation is the pastor or the missionary, and all of us are JV. Maybe one day we'll get to varsity. No dice. It's all level, just different callings. And here he's saying, it's not quit your job, it's redeem it. Be different. Be a light. Your, their, their boss wasn't coming down hard on them for cheating and taking people's money. I guarantee you, if they chose this path, they would be estranged. Somebody's going to cheat them. So you might be thinking, well, if they're going to cheat, i got to cheat too to get ahead. He says, no, you trust me to provide for your needs. Don't quit your job, use it. And the second thing that I think we learn is work for the Lord's eyes. He goes on and gives another example for soldiers. Soldiers also asked him, what shall we do? Remember, soldiers had authority, so they represent authority. And he said, do not extort money. So this was common, that they would get money by just telling them that they have violated something in order to get money from them. Or, it says, by threat or false accusation and be content with your wages. He's after that they should do their work for the Lord's eyes. 
they had authority to do whatever they wanted to do. And so they work for the Lord's eyes, and this is echoed in Colossians 3. Listen to this, 23 through 25. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. It's not that your boss is unimportant. It's that, that the Lord is most important. That's all it's saying. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. That is, you're looking towards a greater reward one day. You are serving the Lord Christ. That's where your eyes should be gazed. But then you might say, but they're cheating and they're getting ahead. They're talking this way and they don't seem to have any consequences. And he goes on to say, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. Work for the Lord's eyes. Show him off in what you do and how you talk and what you laugh at and what you participate in. Work for the Lord's eyes. And ultimately be content. Sometimes working for the Lord's eyes, and hear this, it will mean you make less or don't get a higher position. Not all the time, but sometimes it will. And here he's saying, trust the Lord. Be content with your wages. So he goes on. And we see that not only were they to bear these types of fruit, honoring God in work and being generous, but they were also supposed to begin their journey with this thing of baptism. And look at verse 15. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. Now, just stop right there. There's an evidence that God is at work. When you don't lift yourself up, but you lift God up higher, that's an evidence. That humility is an evidence of the Spirit of God. And he says, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And we know that to be the case from Luke's second volume, the book of Acts, where the Holy Spirit comes down and falls on the church and gives them gifts and power to be witnesses in everywhere that they went. But it says Jesus will not only baptize with Holy Spirit and fire, the fire is a sense of purging and cleansing from the inside out, but his winnowing fork is in his hand. What that was, was it was a wooden fork, like a pitchfork, that you would take and you would shake like this, and it would sift the grain over here with the chaff over here, and the chaff was taken and burned for fuel, and the grain was taken to be consumed. And this is echoing where we were last week, that Jesus forces choices. There is clear allegiance and service to him, and there is clear allegiance to yourself, and there is the sense that Jesus forces us to choose to follow him. And there will come a day of judgment when that will be crystal clear. It will be plain as day. And so we live for the day. And we stand underneath Jesus' mercy, not upon our actions. So verse 18. So with many other exhortations, John preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had reproved him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them. He locked up John the Baptist. So, John preached this, he was faithful, it got him locked up, and eventually, the gospel of John tells us it got his head chopped off. Herod chopped off John the Baptist's head, served it on a platter, 
because that's what his wife requested. But then we don't hear about John anymore because John was doing what? Preparing the way to Jesus. In verse 21, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens opened up, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You're my son, my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, baptism, why did Jesus get baptized? He did it, it says in Matthew, to fulfill righteousness. That is, he wanted to walk the path that we were going to walk. And it was a foreshadowing of what was to come. When he went under the water, it was a foreshadowing that he would die in our place. And when he was brought up out of the water, it was a foreshadowing that he would rise from the dead three days later. So he walked our path, and his death and resurrection will save us from our sins. Why do we get baptized then? One, we follow Jesus' example. Two, we do it to proclaim his death and resurrection. Three, because it's a public display that Jesus is our king. And four, to obey Jesus' command when he says in Matthew 28, make disciples and baptize them. That's what you do. Now, here's the deal, and I think this is some, an issue that we have in our church and in the church in general, and that's this. Baptism is beautifully and powerfully significant. But it is not, and hear this, it is not an announcement of maturity, but of beginnings. And so many people are refusing to be baptized because they don't feel like they're good enough yet. Oh, I don't know enough of the Bible, so I can't get baptized yet because that's a sign of maturity. Nope, it's a sign of beginnings. Oh, well, I'm still struggling in this one area. When I overcome it, then I could get baptized. No, we reject religion as the grounds of our salvation. Baptism is a declaration that you cannot save yourself and that you get in by His works alone. That you die to sin and that He raises you up by His power. And so I say this. If you are not willing to be baptized, then you probably shouldn't take of the Lord's Supper. Because the Lord's Supper is the declaration of what you said at your baptism. And here's what your baptism says. Three things. It says, I love Jesus and I need him to save me from my sins. It says, I want to obey Jesus and everything he commands. And it says, I want to proclaim publicly that Jesus, you are my treasure and my Savior, and I'm a part of your family. I love you, I want to obey you, I'm in your family, and I want to tell the world. That's baptism. And every time we take the Lord's Supper, no matter what a wreck our week has been, we are saying, I love you and I need you to save me. I want to obey you, help me to want to obey. And I want to tell the world that I'm still following you with all I got. Help me, oh God, work in me. I want to surrender my life to you. This is baptism and the Lord's Supper. They are outward signs of an inward change. And they're a testimony that Jesus is who we couldn't be. He is enough. And so, when it comes to ultimate surrender, we lean not on ourselves. We lean on the one who has accomplished 
our surrender as our precious Savior. And in two minutes, I'm going to cover verse 23 through 38. Okay? Seriously. This was by design because these are the verses that put people to sleep. Okay? It's called a genealogy. Okay? It says, verse 23, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son as was supposed, that's referring to the virgin birth, because Joseph didn't, isn't officially his daddy, but only by adoption. So not by biology, but by adoption because of the virgin birth. And then it's the son of, the son of, the son of, the son of, and it just keeps going for a long time. Now, why is that important? It's important. For these reasons. Number one, when you look at Matthew and his account of the genealogy, he stops at Abraham. Son of Abraham, done. Why does he do that? Because he's addressing a primarily Jewish audience and he's telling them that their salvation, this Jesus has come and it is a Jewish salvation that he is there to save Jews. Where does Luke go? All the way back to Adam. And what is he saying? He's saying what has been said about John the Baptist in verse 6. All flesh will see the salvation of God. Salvation is for anyone who would trust in him. Why else is this genealogy there? Well, in Matthew, the genealogy traces a different line than the one in Luke. The one in Matthew traces the royal line, how he is a Davidic king. This one traces how he is in the line of David and gets all the promises of the people of Israel. But now, have you ever asked this? Where does a genealogy, where should it be? If you're going to put a genealogy somewhere, where, where does it make sense to put it? Anybody know? Somebody? For, yes. In the beginning. Thank you very much. It starts in the beginning. But heck, we're three chapters in. What in the world is he doing? Because of this. He wants to tell us this. He wants to put a Savior who walked the path that we couldn't walk by being baptized in our place, foreshadowing that everything hinges on his death and resurrection. And then he puts a genealogy which says he is the son of God, fully God, fully man, and then follows it with the temptation when Jesus our Savior was tempted in every single way as we are, yet without sin. We have a Savior, fully God and fully man, the one who truly is the Son of God, the true Adam, because Adam couldn't do it. He failed at every point. And so we look not to humanity, man to save us. We look to the God-man, Jesus Christ, who was tempted in every way and was victorious, who died in our place and rose from the dead. He has accomplished our salvation, so it is a joy to surrender to him. This repentance thing, this rejecting religion, and this bearing fruit is all because he will give you the strength to do it. He has accomplished it, and we lean everything upon him. So may we surrender and find the refreshment that comes there. Let's pray.